Dear listeners, this is Interfaith-ish. I'm your host, Jack Gordon, and every other Wednesday right here on Tacoma Radio, we bring you bold conversations about what we believe, why we believe, and how we navigate the common ground and differences between our traditions. This morning, dear listeners, we're going to be talking about business development, community investment, and the connection between personal wealth management and social impact. For this conversation, I am happy to be joined by two friends, Rasul Shair, who is Muslim and serves as a small business advisor for the Washington Area Community Investment Fund, and Ari Weisbard, who is Jewish and works as managing partner with the DC firm Values Added Financial. Thank you both for being part of the show. Thank you for having us, Jack. That's Good great. to be here. It's, it's great to join you. I'm very excited to have both of you in particular on this show together because I think that both of you have so much to share about how one's personal convictions inform the good they do in the world, whether as an activist, a business owner, or broadly an engaged member of our society. And I'm really excited to uh, explore how your religious and spiritual convictions guide your work. So I wanted to start about hearing a little bit more about your individual stories. Uh, Rasul, can you start, tell us a little bit about where you grew up and how religious education uh, or principles factored into your family's life? Uh, sure. Uh, interestingly enough, I actually didn't grow up Muslim. Right. Uh, yeah. My background is from a religious or quote unquote spiritual uh, or probably from the Catholic, uh, the Catholic lens, uh -huh. religious. <laughs> uh, my mom is uh, Panamanian. And so she is uh, just traditional Catholic through and through. Mm -hmm. And growing up, uh, we actually uh, followed that route. My father wasn't a big uh, religious individual at all. Matter of fact, he's Baptist, if my memory serves me correct. But okay, all right. That's, pro that's probably a name only. Uh -huh. uh, but yeah, he was a person who had no extensive interests in any type of religious identity or affiliation or practice. And so he was like, when my mother have at it, uh, you raise the kids how you want to, <laughs> as long as they don't grow up to be any murderers, drug addicts, or <laughs> psychopaths, then, uh, you know, we're pretty good, uh, well, more you, or less. And you grew up in Vegas, right? So there yeah, were definitely up, no yeah. history of murderers, psychopaths. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, Las Vegas is probably one of the least <laughs> seediest cities in the country, obviously. That's where all the new Jews and the nuns and the Catholics and Muslims... They all convene for the annual conference of spiritual enlightenment. Well, I think they did. It was all the Jewish gangsters that were over there. Right. <laughs> right you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the, the, the haven of spirituality and bliss. That's what Las Vegas is known for, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, so what was that? Uh, so, what was that like growing up? Was there a tension there with your, um, you know, maybe religious convictions at home and and maybe the the culture? I don't I don't really get a sense of what it's what it's like to grow up in a place like Las Vegas. Oh, yeah. And it's interesting. Everything I'm saying is pretty much is being facetious. Like Las Vegas is I didn't grow up extensively in terms of an idea of having a really strong sort of spiritual bent. OK. Uh, for most part, uh, in I would imagine in uh, many households, like a lot of Christians, you go to church on Sunday, you kind of, you know, go through the motions, sort of speak. Uh, and, uh, you know, and then. Monday through Saturday, you're kind of just hanging out and doing what you do, as, particularly as a kid, going mm -hmm. to parties, going to sports events, playing varsity basketball or sport or whatever it may be. So honestly, I didn't really, quote unquote, get engaged in terms of pursuing some type of real meaning around, quote unquote, religious practices or sort of spiritual centering, really till I got into college mm -hmm. uh, and then even on the back end of college. Uh, and so that's kind of like where I started, you know, part of it happened, you know, in college, I think for a lot of us, we sort of get into the space, like, who are we, you right. know, what are, what are we about? Where are we for trying sure. to go? Whether that's from your professional lens or personal, however they, however that may transpire. So, yeah. So in that sort of exploration, uh, that's kind of when my sort of spiritual journey kind of really kind of started. Yeah. And so, so you grew up in a, in a Christian home. So when did yeah. you encounter Islam and what drew you to that path? 
Yeah, it was interesting. It was it was one of these things that really happened slowly in a lot of ways over mm. probably a three or four year time span. Uh, and so my roommate in my sophomore year of college was Muslim. Okay. And um, I've always been the type of individual that I am literally a student for life. And so anything that's relatively different from how I grew up or different from what I've been exposed to, I'll at a minimum sit down and have a conversation about it and, mm. you know, ask questions or what have you. So my roommate was a Muslim and we happened, I can't remember why, but I decided he either invited me or maybe we happened to be going to the store and as a part of the detour or something, we ended up going to a mosque. One of the things that struck me in terms of just very different was that when we went to the mosque, there was no chairs or any seating. Hmm. It was a big, vast open space, which just visually was striking versus growing up in a Catholic church that I went to. Of course, there weren't pews in terms of the tradition of the big wood bench. There was like chairs, but it was, you know, it was a, a, a religious building with seating. And they had tables and the priest, you know, the sacrament, all those different types of things. But there was furnishings, obviously, everywhere. But in the mosque, it was completely, totally open. And so I was like, wow, this is really different. And it was just like, so this is a house of worship, but there's nothing in here. Uh So that was kind of one of the earliest things that kind of struck me about just, oh, this is a different type of thing than what I'm used to. You said that, you know, you didn't really grow up with with a, a, a deeply spiritual mindset, maybe religious formation growing growing up at home. Did you, I guess, note a, a significant change in yourself, the way you carried yourself when you um, embraced Islam as a young man? Um, the interesting thing is, is that there was some of a culmination of a bunch of different things that kind of led to, you know, I'm really pursuing a some tool, so to speak, okay. or a platform uh-huh. that kind of really helped guides. And so honestly, the probably my last year in college, I was actually in a leadership program uh, that was structured around, you know, uh, how do you prepare for leadership? What does it mean to be a leader? I mean, that was independent. It wasn't spiritually based. It was something that the campus, matter of fact, is called a peer advisory leaders called PALS. And there was a bunch of workshops that kind of said, you know, if, as a leader, uh, you know, how do you sort of set goals for yourself? You know, mm-hmm. what are some strategic directions that you would like to go and how do you go about actually meeting those objectives for yourself? Uh, and that, in addition to sort of a big part of like, OK, you know what, I'm really I see myself as a leader. Uh, I see myself as someone who is an achiever. I've always been ambitious in a lot of different reasons for a lot of, in a lot of different ways. And so I was like, you know, I really want to achieve what I would like to achieve, what I set my mind to do. Mm -hmm. And so a part of that conversation, in addition to the leadership piece is like, you know, I'm really interested in, in sort of these undercurrents in terms of faith and spirituality. And I've always in sort of a, uh, an amateur scientist, so to speak, I've always been interested in science. And so just all these different things. I was always looking like, what is sort of the meaning of life and all these different things around, you know, all the, uh, the, the, the sort of the, the, the sciences around biology and psychology and all these different types of things. So that's always been me, always looking for bigger meaning around things, bigger picture. And so obviously a spiritual spirituality lends itself to those kinds of framings that allow you to sort of understand and have these discussions about who am I, how do I relate to other human beings, right? Uh, you know, what is my purpose, things of that nature. So a lot of that culminated in sort of my spiritual journey was very much a part of sort of using that as sort of the, the package, so to speak, that wraps that all up. And Islam just kind of ended up being, uh, uh, at the time, uh, just a really, really strong factor in sort of allowing me to put all these things together in terms of, you know, an education mm-hmm. and, uh, ed, uh, you know, and uh, once again, sociology and, and leadership and all these different types of things. So it kind of just kind of dovetail in a lot of regards in that way. So Ari, you and I met probably about 10 years ago at this point through uh, the organizing work that you and your dear partner, Rebecca, uh, do with Jews United for Justice. And um, I'm, I'm curious, if you've always had such a strong connection between your Jewish community life and, and progressive politics, was that part of how you grew up? Yeah, it definitely was. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's always hard to tell exactly how much the threads were coming from exactly the same place or if they were right. just two interlocking threads. But both of them were really consistent threads uh, in my upbringing, uh, you know, from my parents, from my friends and community. 
Um, and I, I can't really remember a time when there wasn't a, a major part of my life that was was Jewish and a major part of my life that was around what what kind of change we can make in the world to make it more like the world that we want. Was it um, an example that your your parents set also with with the 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 type of engagement that you have? Uh, yeah, to some extent it was. My my parents were both um, a little bit more in the academic sphere, um, although they certainly you know were. Uh, activists in the 60s. Um, mm-hmm. My um, my mom was a woman's studies librarian uh, in, at UW-Madison for most of the, my time growing up, and my dad uh, taught law and medical ethics. Um, so definitely dinner table conversations, you know, about the news, about politics, uh, were, were a steady stream. Um, uh, you know, m- most of the rallies I attended were with friends rather than with my family, but um, mm-hmm. but were certainly very supported by my family. One thing I, re- I remember Rebecca saying at, at one point, it may have been when you all announced that you were getting married, she made some comment about how you were the type of kid who had been saving to put a down payment on a house since you were like in middle school. Yeah. Do I remember that right? Uh, uh, That's a slight exaggeration, but not necessarily (laughs) wrong. I did do a sixth grade project where I interviewed a stockbroker and tried to figure out what that was all about and plotted some stocks on graph paper. So there, there definitely was a stream on that. Um, uh, it might have been more like 16 or 17 when I started saving in my, in my, in my Roth IRA for retirement. Really, really late. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It stood out because it was exactly the type of advice my parents had for me that I you know, completely ignored because why save money when I can get a complete set of you know, Marvel Universe trading cards or something like that. So, so I was just impressed that that was, that was something that you had in mind as, as such a young man. So um, I, anyway, I'm I'm curious how how you were taught about money growing up, and more importantly, um, what were you taught about how wealth should be used? You know, I don't remember a lot of explicit education around money itself. I think, like a lot of places, uh-huh. it was you know, money is a topic that people don't always bring up or talk about sure. explicitly. So it was more about the broader questions about you know society and how we share resources and and how unequal society was, and that there wasn't really any moral justification for that. Um, you know, I think um, uh, sometimes there was a religious inflection and sometimes not, but, the, but I had a, a, you know, a deep sense in my core from my family and my community that a lot of the differences in what kind of resources people are born into are really pretty morally arbitrary. Mm. And that it's not, you know, it's not that we, we have what we have because we worked hard uh, alone, you know, that, that matters to a degree, but so much of it is just the, the luck of being born into a family that has resources. Uh, and that as a result, we should really be thinking about how to, how to make society more fair and make sure that, that the accidents of birth don't mean that someone, you know, has a limited ability to thrive and have, um, uh, you know, have a life where they have the resources they need and can, and can do things that are, um, meaningful and purposeful. And so now with the the firm that you work with, uh, Values Added Financial, I'm I'm curious how you distinguish between this idea of, for example, socially responsible just investing and living a socially responsible life. What does that look like in terms of thinking about one's wealth and resources? It's one of the big differences between our firm and and the way that a lot of um, folks in the industry approach this, because a a lot of uh, financial advisors are really just investment managers. And that means that the main tool that they have available to them is, you know, what mutual fund or or ETF you're invested in. So they can help you choose a fund that maybe excludes companies that make guns or excludes oil companies or something like that that might have something to do with values. Um, So they might ask you some questions about that, and then they'll say, okay, this mutual fund, not that mutual fund. Mm. Uh, We work with people in a much deeper and more comprehensive way. Um, And we actually, you know, both of us have had involvement in the union world where we tried to do some corporate social responsibility through union pension funds and through, you know, shareholder activism. And Uh honestly, we're aware of some of the limits of of that strategy uh, as as a social movement strategy. Um, so we see that as, as one tool that's useful for people if it's really important to them not to profit off of certain types of industries or practices that they have totally legitimate moral qualms with. It's a, it's a great tool to have in the toolbox. But for a lot of clients, the more meaningful choices they make are you know, what they do with their time, what they do with their career, um, what kind of work they do, um, and, and how they have a balanced life where they have their job that they make money from, but they also can be civically in. Uh, engaged and, and involved in, in organizing or activism, um, you know, how, how much money they give and how they give it in a way that can help fund 
organizations and efforts to change society. Um, uh, you know, what, whether they buy solar panels and put them on their house and both the financial and ethical aspects of that kind of question. But mm -hmm. we can really have a much broader conversation about, um, you know, what, what fits with who they are as people, but also what, what creates the biggest effect in the world and how to do that in a way that's efficacious and, and also personally meaningful. So Rasul, as an entrepreneur and somebody who spent a lot of time on, on business development in DC, um, particularly when it comes to the creative economy, I'm curious, what are some of the ways in which you find having a strong moral conviction helps guide or, or steer your decisions? Um, it's interesting because I was listening to Ari talk and in terms of sort of the, the ecosystem which he grew up in, I found a lot of similarities in terms of mine. Like mm. my parents are both entrepreneurs and are essentially, you know, poster children, so to speak, for uh, spokespersons around capitalism. Like my mother's Panamanian, grew up, uh, you know, in a uh, developing country. And, you know, like a lot of immigrants who come to the United States, it, they can they, you can, can't get them to stop raving about it hmm. <laughs> in terms of, you know, this is why we love it. And so I just grew up in a house that just money was kind of like, you know, always in the background. Like my father was a restaurateur. Uh, he was also an investor in real estate. And so just my background has always I just grew up around conversation discussions about money and all kinds of different you know, all kinds of different ways and formats. Uh -huh. And so that very much painted just in a lot of ways in terms of oriented me about how I sit in the world. Not just about money per se, but the idea that what money means and how it structures how we exist. Like with money and business people, it's like either making money or you're not, right? It's either yes or no. It's very black and white. And so in, in that regard, my father was very unattached emotionally and creativity wasn't necessarily the thing he did. He's like, are we making money? Or are we not? Is it a good investment or is it not? Hmm. So that sort of is a, a, a 50% in terms of how I kind of sit in the world in terms of my own type of personality, which you just mentioned the creative economy, like the idea of creativity and art, right? It's very, it's not black and white. It's very much open for interpretation. What is creativity? And then how does that fit with this thing that's kind of very rigid to a certain degree? Or it's kind of like, you know, uh, pretty much it's either one or the other. And so in that regard, I've always found this, this space that I've sit in and who I am is just like, so how do we take these sort of seemingly disparate ideas of creativity, which is very much open for interpretation? There's a lot of nuance. Not saying there's not a nuance in terms of how money exists, but once again, in businesses, you're either making money or you're not as one sort of way that you look at money and finances. And so that's kind of always been me. I've kind of always been someone who's sort of like, how do we put these disparate worlds together? So when I kind of uh, put together the TEDx event, which kind of focused on creative economy back in 2012, that was just a way to sort of continue this internal conversation about having with myself about how I grew up and how I'm oriented now. Mm -hmm. Um, in, in terms of how do these two things work. And then in, in, in a lot of our religious practices and spiritual spaces, it's always that balance, right? How do we sort of look at this balancing act in terms of meeting people where they're at in terms of their personal expressions about whether they're a chef or whether they're an artist or whether they're a digital media startup and how do they sort of manifest their personality and manifest their values and manifest sort of their identity. Mm -hmm. And but then how do we sort of manage that with sort of the real hard you know, facts of like, is this going to be successful or not? Is this going to allow us to pay bills? Is this going to allow us to send our children to school? Is this going to allow us to pay for, you know, uh, the groceries, so on and so forth. So that's kind of a way that I kind of saw this creative economy, creativity and economy, once again, kind of seem like separate things. But, you know, if there's a right. natural tension there, how do those two things kind of operate with each other? And it's something I've always been fascinated by with Islam is that actually the religion has a lot to say around finance and, and the ways of doing business. So I'm wondering if there are, are there guiding principles, things that you think about as, as you are starting new businesses or coaching other people? Maybe it's, it's more of in the background, not necessarily overt, but are, are there certain uh, principles from Islam um, that are relevant to, to the way that you operate in the world as a businessman? Yeah, definitely. I mean, without going down a rabbit hole in terms of Islamic principles and Islamic finance and things of that nature, in general, 
it's the idea. And this really comes from if anyone who studies Islam or study sort of Muslim practices, you know, the Prophet Muhammad um, is a central character, a central figure. I mean, he was once again uh, in Saudi Arabia, uh, the person that kind of uh, was given sort of prophecy, so to speak. And if you follow his life, and there's a terminology in Islam called a sirah, which is basically the historical documentation and docu- uh, historical journey of his life, uh, a lot of the things that Muhammad, Prophet Muhammad, uh, uh, in terms of personified, was this idea of being fair. Like people always went to him because he was his his whole journey, his whole life, how he lived, how he engaged with people, what he was always 100% fair, uh, never being, you know, uh, leaning towards one person, favoritism for one way or another. So in that, so how that sort of colors how I engage, it's like, what is the fair thing to do? Uh, I just recently received my MBA in 2018, Mm -hmm. a couple years back, and one of the most powerful classes I took was the idea of business ethics. And so the whole thing around and was in a lot of ways, you think that maybe economics or marketing or something else would be like a really powerful uh, sort of uh, courses to take. But for me, it was really this idea of ethics. And it's just like it's like when you make a decision to do A, B or C, it's not about, you know, you're going to do it. But the question is, should you do it? And if you do do it, why? Mm. And so all those things really kind of take uh, play into, okay, if I'm giving some advice to an individual about why they should start a business or how they should make money. There's those issues and questions of like, why are you making this decision? Is it something that is benefiting you and your family? Is it benefiting the community? And if on some level, you know, it's not explicit in this idea of exploitation, uh, but, you know, the way I present the conversation and the organizations that I work with and just the type of individuals I look to network and connect with, we are very much anti anything around exploitation. I mean, obviously it gets into the conversation because of the nature of who we are as human beings, but any type of conversation or engagement that we can put forth that really explores anything that's anti that just by default allows us to, to sit in a space that we are trying to do something that is beneficial to your well-being. Something's benefit and well-being means your financial well-being, your mental well-being, your psychological well-being. Uh, and even just once again, your economic well-being. So anything that really translates to the idea of this is healthy for you and it's beneficial for you, your family, your loved ones, your community, your colleagues in a way that benefits. That's kind of how I sit in terms of how I engage and kind of what drives the kind of discussions I have with either you know my colleagues, uh, my coworkers, or even the uh, entrepreneurs and business owners that we have conversations and discussions with. Uh-huh. Ari, uh, if somebody already has a little bit of scratch, whether they've uh, they've done well in business or it's inherited, I'm I'm curious what you've seen as some of these moral or ethical dilemmas that that people face. I mean, the, the obvious one is, well, I I just want to keep it all to myself, <laughs> but but I mean, if um, if someone is already thinking about altruistic uh, endeavors. So there's one overarching question that comes up for a lot of our clients and a lot of people that I talk to, um, in the, and, and I think of it in a Jewish term, although it's not always how other folks think about it, but there's a saying attributed to Rabbi Hillel, uh, if you're not for yourself, who will be for you? But if mm. you're only for yourself, what are you? Mm. And that tension of you know trying to figure out what, how much do I really need for me and for my family and how much do I not really need and should be about, um, you know, others and about uh, repairing this very broken world that we live in uh, is one of the overarching questions that uh, a lot of human beings struggle with and is often pretty central to our work. Um, but then, you know, we also delve, um, you know, more deeply into a lot of the specifics around, okay, you've decided that you want to give some money away. You've decided that's important and 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 fair. Um, but then, you know, we, we have a, a lot of of questions that come next. We actually have a five-part blog post on this on our website on charitable giving that we released around, uh, you know, the the holiday season last year. Oh, all right. And, um, you know, it really has five questions. You know, why should I give? How much should I give? Who should I give to? How can I make giving a meaningful part of my life? And how can I maximize 
uh, the the effectiveness of my giving, which includes mm. like tax questions and um, you know different different charitable giving strategies, mm-hmm. and you know that we put that out there so that everyone, whether they want to pay for individualized services or not, can get some access to the kinds of work we do with our clients. Uh, and then when we're able to work with someone one on one, we can really guide them through all of those questions as part of um, developing a you know a really thoughtful and proactive um, plan around around giving. Oh, that's great. So, Rasul, this is uh, I, I want to talk a little bit about your work with the fund and mm-hmm. and and uh, specifically this idea about inclusivity and and how equitable economic development factor into your work. You touched a little bit about about um, you know what what people stand for or against you know in their in their business practices, um, but I'm curious in terms of sort of community development and investment in the community. How do those ideas of inclusivity and equity equity factor in? No, definitely. Um, the With the organization I work with, you just mentioned, the Washington Area Community Investment Fund, a lot of our work is in underserved communities. Uh, and what I find interesting, and this work is new to me, like prior to coming on board with Wake Up, like I ran my own marketing and strategy consultancy, which I worked with, you know, startups uh, out of Silicon Valley up to helping to develop digital products for companies like Walmart to uh, Allstate and other Fortune 500, 100 companies. So this work that I'm doing now uh, in, in, this, in a vein is similar in terms of like, how do we think about business strategically? But the shift to a certain degree is this idea of uh, building uh, generational wealth. Uh, and so the communities that we work with, a lot of them, not all of them, but a, a pretty good portion are at Ward 7 and 8 in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of those communities, just anyone who has any type of um, education or insight or understanding around D.C., just those two wards uh, in a lot of different ways just lack a lot of economic engagement uh, and economic uh, focus from the city in general for a lot of different reasons, which you know would go a little bit beyond this conversation. Uh, but because of that, the idea of how do we think about engaging first the individual, like who are they, uh, why are they uh, acting as they are, you know, is it is it communal factors, is it an individual, things of that nature. And so how do we address the individual person in terms of a business owner? What are the skill sets, the information that they need to once again be a successful business person. It's not just a business person, but the thing I like about work at Wake If is that we look at this idea of, of holistic approach to the individual. So it's not just about can we figure out what your marketing gaps are or where the gaps in turn your financing for your business, but especially with the pandemic that transpired, what are the ways that we can show up that helps you in terms of your whole self? Um, once again, we're not sitting here like self-help gurus <laughs> specifically, mm-hmm. uh, but we take into consideration that, you know, as Ari just kind of mentioned, there's all these other kind of factors like people want to figure out how can I do good? And so our issue is uh, that we have is like, how can we support you not just having this real, you know, five minute conversations like, OK, well, let's see how much money is your business making? Oh, it's only making five thousand dollars a month. You don't meet our minimum criteria. OK, well, mm-hmm. thank you. God bless. Goodbye. We kind of really figure out what do they need? What are they looking for? And if we can't meet those needs, we really do our best. Like, well, you know what? This organization over here might be a good resource for you. And we'd really take a consultative approach. Like we, we don't sit in here like, you know, we're trying to churn out numbers. So we say, okay, we have five minutes per business. And if we talk to 10 businesses an hour, and then that means 300 businesses a day or whatever the case may be. So we don't have any guidelines or any rigid guidelines in terms of how much time we spend talking to our potential clients. We really take the time uh, to really speak with them and find out what's going on, what's happening. Uh, Sometimes we get into these stories in terms of how they grew up and why they started the business and that, you know, they really found something that they were passionate about. So we really take this consultative approach. And and lots of times I get into very personal stories. And particularly in the pandemic, Folks are really hurting out here. And so sometimes folks just need to just get some challenges and, and, and struggles and just a lot of anxiety off their chest. And they didn't need someone to talk to. And so we provide a space to just to do that. Well, I was, I was going to ask actually about that, you know, with, with this now year long pandemic that's shuttering so many small businesses. Um, and yet, you know, there's so much pricey development that continues unabated around the city. Are there alternative models um, that you've been seeing 
um, that show, you know, an expression of some of the, the spiritual core that you were talking about earlier? Because the work that I do isn't uh, driven specifically by any type of spiritual or religious principles. Uh, the type of work that we often engage in isn't necessarily anything faith-based per se. Sure, sure. But, but what I am seeing and what we are experiencing is that folks are really coming into these conversations about what does business mean, right? What does it mean to operate uh, as an entrepreneur? What does it mean for the economy and how do we take, and if you take this idea of, you know, spirituality means like, how do I show up and be present as a human being to mm-hmm. our environment? Uh, I think there's a lot of that happening, particularly with the work that we're doing. And we have to have these conversations. It's just like we can't operate as we did in, you know, early 2020, 2019 and before because the environment has just changed. Mm-hmm. And so the reality is like, for instance, one of our coworkers, and I'm, I'm, I'm Ari and I'm pretty sure, Jack, of course, you guys can identify this because you have, have children. You know, when you're at home and you have some background noise or children running around, a lot of our co- my coworkers, they say, excuse me, let me, I'm sorry. And they have to hit mute because they have to go deal with right. a, a child doing X, Y, and Z. So now it's this idea of like patience, right? You know, like if, if we're just like, look here, we'd have to drive revenue at all costs you have to right, factor you're in a full person. You're, yeah, you're right. You're a full person. And so, right. how, so we're dealing with that with our, with our staff. And so then um, we're dealing with that with our, with our clients. And so yeah. sometimes if, you know, if someone misses a meeting uh, as in a very specific example, we're not sitting here like, okay, they miss a meeting. Look here, our time is valuable. We're on to the next person. My conversation is, you know what? We understand it's the pandemic. There's a lot of things that may change at the last minute because you're literally fighting day by, you know, minute by minute, hour by hour. So if you need to reschedule, no problem. So there's a lot of flexibility and, and effort to be patient because people are going through stuff. So in that regard, I think there's this connection in terms of spiritual principle, but right. how do we show patience, right. right? How do we not get angry or irritated with people because my ego is like, well, look here, I'm an investment fund. We have money. We're important. You need to respect our time. It's not like that for yeah. where I am and how we work. And so to me, that's a way that kind of these principles of, you know, spirituality and balance and just really being kind to people, so to speak, not trying to be, you know, kumbaya about it, mm-hmm. um, but really ex- exemplifying these ideas of being kind and really understanding this idea of stepping into other people's shoes and having patience and really trying to understand other person's life and what they're going through to be able to show up and support them in the best way that we can. Ari, for you, um, you know, again, thinking about this, the the pandemic period that we're in when the, the gap between rich and poor just keeps on getting wider, um, how, are, how are you counseling your clients that are, you know, frankly, fortunate enough to be thinking long-term about how their wealth can can benefit society and not just the individual? Yeah, we get a lot of um, uh, calls about this. I mean, there's just this profound disconnect between the 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 real struggle that so many people are going through right now um, that's really exacerbated a lot of the struggling that was happening even before the pandemic and the fact that the stock market is like higher than it's ever been. Um, right. you know, there were certainly calls during the dip in March and April uh, where we would help people um, you know, rebalance, but also not get out of the stock market if that didn't, you know, that didn't make sense for them during a dip. Um, but then, you know, the the as people are getting a little bit more used to the crisis and feeling like it's more of a marathon than a sprint, and they're out of panic mode, a lot of a lot of folks really are ready to ask the question. You know, we're spending a lot less on eating out and um, you know doing anything, so we're actually our balance sheet is stronger than ever. And there are people who, you know, might not qualify for unemployment because of the way that our country discriminates against immigrants, uh, might not be getting some of the supports that um, the federal or the local governments might might give might give and really need our help. You know, how can we both help them with their immediate needs, but also um, try to change policies so that the government is supporting them the way that they should? So for some people, that was helping make sure Democrats, you know, won the Senate so that we can actually have a federal policy that that that's um, really responsive to the crisis. Um, you know, for other people, it's about strengthening advocacy groups or just providing direct aid because people need to eat while we're working on those longer uh, those longer term structural problems.
So in the first part of our program, we heard about our, our guests' projects and their work in the community. And now as we do every episode in, in the second part of our program, it's time to turn the mics over to my dear guests to see if they have questions of their own. So this is an opportunity for you to ask each other anything that you'd like to follow up on about each other's uh, spiritual or religious journeys or life stories, anything that you are familiar with coming in today that you want to understand better about each other's traditions or realize you may have misunderstood. So on our show, we're seeking to model constructive and respectful dialogue in the spirit of learning, while at the same time not being afraid to roll up our sleeves and get into some interfaith-ish. So with that, I'll, uh, I'll ask Ari, do you have any uh, questions for Russell? Yeah, um, you know, I was really struck by the phrase that, that you said, I think, uh, just a few minutes ago, that you, you felt you weren't really driven by religious principles when you when you think about this, um, you know, like how to be moral in this world and how to and how to address some of the issues we've been talking about. And I'm wondering, you know, I, I, I'm wondering how much work the word driven is doing there. You know, is it um, do you feel that 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 your religious upbringing, you know, either your earlier Catholic upbringing or your connection with uh, Islam now um, are are influencing you are are uh, informing how you think about this, even if they're not necessarily the underlying driving force. Um, and and if the if they are influencing you, I'm curious, kind of like what are the texts or the allegories or the parts that you that you find to be touchstones that you that you come back to uh, when when right. you're doing this work. No, that's a good question. And and sometimes, in one of the things I appreciate about Islam is is that. In, in, in a lot of spiritual practices, I think uh, the same philosophies apply is that uh, every day is an opportunity to continue to improve and do better. And who you were yesterday doesn't determine who you are today and that might not even determine who you are tomorrow. So uh, in that regard, uh, the idea of and when I said I'm not driven by it, it's like that might not have been necessarily the word in terms of what I was going at, because sometimes words can <laughs> not necessarily capture exactly in terms of what we're trying to convey in terms of our ideas. Um, part of it is just that in a lot of ways that even now over the years when I first embraced Islam, they very much still reflect who I've always been. And so in, in, in some regard, it's just I feel like that regardless of how I had embraced Islam or not, I still to some degree would still be the person I am and doing what I'm doing. Uh, and so depending on the day and who I'm talking to, uh, I'll then drop into that conversation about how Islam sort of affects or impacts or quote unquote drives my behavior. Uh, when a lot of times uh, I can explain who I am and how I am independent of Islam, but then I can also, once again, if it makes sense because of the conversation. And as I think a lot of folks, I think either on the call or I can imagine are you and Jack, you know, our, our spiritual teachings and beliefs can be very private matters to some extent. We're trying try to hit people over the head with what we believe or drive them to conversion and all these different types of things. So in a lot of ways, it's very private to me, but it's very, very much present. And so in a lot of ways, just because of I, I feel like I'm balancing the idea between how I was raised in most part and sort of my later found identity and sort of teachings around Islam, that I, I kind of practice my behavior professionally, personally, um, in a lot of ways, just in a lot, in, in, in many respects, how my father and mother raised me. And then depending on the conversation, it then I, I, I can then fold Islam to sort of verify or validate that. Um, and that was a challenge for me earlier on because since neither one of my parents were Muslim, uh, I was just like, well, my parents did a really good job, you know, with structuring how I believe. What does this quote unquote Islamic thing have to contribute to my well-being? So that's been a challenge and sort of an ongoing journey for me is how does Islam to some extent fill in the gaps, quote unquote, or improve sort of the way that I sit in the world, where they fill in some of the voids that my parents weren't able to teach me. That's a constant daily uh, sort of learning, kind of a daily thing I'm constantly engaging in. And so interesting enough, as you said, um, I, I, I am driven uh, by it, or it, it's the undercurrent, it's a blueprint in a lot of ways to sort of how I am, but it's not something that uh, I'm constantly like, which is not a problem, I'm not constantly going to um, Islam in terms of all the specific teachings and, and 
there's, you know, like any of our religious and spiritual bodies of, of learning, there's so much information that's available there. And so I might derive, you know, maybe a, a path from the Quran uh, to sort of like capture it, but I'm not necessarily on a regular basis kind of delving into sort of the deep, sort of the rabbit hole in terms of spiritual beliefs around Islam to sort of really gather the, th- the tools that I need. But I know that they're always there. Uh, and so I, I, in some regard, that's kind of how I sort of think about uh, the question that you just asked in terms of, you know, how does it drive me? It's, it's, it's like it's like a uh, it's like a container that holds that I'm that I'm in. But within that container is other things that I also uh, uh, look at or, or, or derive inspiration from. But I think the bigger container, so to speak, is definitely uh, by, by any by, by, you know, unmistakably is definitely Islamic in nature. Mm-hmm. If that makes any sense, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. Yeah, if, I, if I'm hearing you correctly, you know, I, I think what I'm hearing is that you, you know, your your profound humanity and the things that you care about might be something that would be your driving force, you know, regardless of whether you had found Islam in your life, but that then the your connection to Islam and your learning from Islam provide kind of a container and structure and way of, of kind of um, taking that driving force and, and giving it more specific uh, structure in your life. Am, am I hearing you right? And yeah, no, that, that that is that is exactly correct. And 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 just real quickly, it, and I think as a quote unquote convert, that's the word that that folks use in popular language. And I don't use that myself as I embraced it. Uh, but it's it's always this idea that there was a huge part of my life which is very influential, um, just in terms of how I was raised, and it had no connections uh, to Islam in terms of directly. And so I'm always sitting in this world in terms of, you know, I have relationships that that people who knew me before I was Muslim and those are afterwards. And I'm constantly trying to balance those. And sometimes just Islamic, quote unquote, language, it just doesn't work because it doesn't work because my mom is Catholic. My dad is is Baptist. Most of my family. Is, so I can't talk Islam with them because it then gets, you know, whether you're politics, money, like you mentioned earlier, people we don't talk about money necessarily in our family certain conversations can get sticky and it just makes, you know, unfortunately, unfortunately, it's like, you know what, I'm just not going to touch it because it's literally like a, 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 a TNT bomb waiting to happen if just the wrong thing is said. So I'm constantly balancing these two sort of spaces and relationships with folks who are uh, acquainted with Islam uh, or even deep spiritual practices and folks who are not. And so that's kind of a, a balance that I'm always trying to walk and trying to figure out sort of where that where that sits. Mm-hmm. Rasul, do you have any questions for Ari? Yes, definitely. I, I find fascinating in my own life and in general, this idea of justice, right? Like it's so easy and Ari, I can imagine just in your own experiences, uh, whether through the relationships you have or the, the different people that you engage with. I mean, it's just very easy. Like, hey, I'm doing well. Um, I'm doing pretty good. I'm not out killing or murdering or or putting the the boot on anybody's neck, and I'm I'm good. What for you personally, and and or your clients? What sort of those motivations that wow, there's other people that are suffering or other people that aren't doing as good, or I'm seeing, you know, the world at large could use some support or some type of assistance. What are some of those driving factors that would make you uh, and even the work that you do, your friends, colleagues that sit in the same space as you, sitting at the idea that, you know what, there's something beyond me. There's, there's, I think, because I think we're being honest, a lot of us, you know, there's a selfish act, there's an ego, like take care of us as long as we're good, we're okay. So what is, what are the things that drive you to have those conversations and for you to think deeply and then act deeply, especially with philanthropy, in that way that says, hey, we need to look out for society? Like, what, how does that work? Uh, sort of, how does it, how's that wired into you and sort of folks that you kind of talk to and engage with? Wow, what a profound question. I'll, I'll try to figure out how to, how to kind of get my teeth in this one. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, what it really comes down to is like, what are we on this planet for? And what, you know, what is our purpose? And what is, um, what's, you know, what's the point of our lives? And so we often try very early in our relationship with our clients uh, not to say how much money do you need to retire, but to get at that at that th- those bigger questions about their vision for their life and and who they want to be. 
Uh, and so we'll often um, start by asking our client and sometimes, you know, couples, if, if they're working with us together, you know, find this a profound way to have a conversation as a couple about their their differences in their purpose. You know, we ask a few key questions where they write in advance and then we, we listen to them and talk over their answers that try to get at that core question about, about you know, what is the purpose of their life? And for a lot of people... Um, you know, that does start with, their, you know, their, their family or, um, you know, how they spend their time, what they enjoy. And when you ask the first cup, you know, the first question, maybe those are the things that come up. But as you contemplate your mortality, as you as you mm -hmm. go deeper, um, then, you know, it, it, almost everyone that we work with, it really does come out that they want uh, to leave a mark on the world. And they and that often has something to do with um, with justice, with affecting other people. Um, and, um, and then that, you know, that provides one of the main guiding lights of, of the rest of our work together. Um, you know, in the Jewish tradition, um, you know, one of the, one of the allegories, you know, back from when we did more agriculture was that, you mm -hmm. know, when you plow, when you plow your field, uh, you know, some of that is for you, but, but you're not supposed to plow the corners and you're not supposed to pick up what falls on the ground. That's, that's not yours. And that mm. if you do, you're stealing from the poor and you're stealing from God because that doesn't belong to you. And that, mm. you know, that metaphor, you know, I'm not doing it because it says that in the Torah, but that metaphor of thinking about, um, you know, that that part of what we we um, bring forth from the earth is ours, but part of it, you know, wasn't because of our efforts and doesn't belong to us, you know, is is a guiding metaphor uh, for my life. And I don't think it's a coincidence. You know, I like you, I'm not really trying to be a good person because necessary, you know, the underlying driving force is, I think, something more universalistic and not Jewishly, Jewish specifically. But the way I think about these issues, I don't think it's a coincidence. You know, I come from a faith tradition where Maimonides had a very careful eight-step ladder of different types of um, charitable giving. I don't think it's a coincidence that I'm now working at a firm that did a five-part blog uh, series <laughs> right. trying to tangle the different steps of that. Um, the idea that you can be thoughtful about this and that being um, careful and structured and proactive and thoughtful can make this, you know, more meaningful and more um, and more effective. Um, I think really is influenced by by growing up in a Jewish uh, a Jewish world. Cool, cool, nice. Gentlemen, as we close, I'll, I'll ask if each of you has a simple sage piece of advice to leave with our, our audience this morning, perhaps uh, a word to the wise grounded in, in each of your traditions um, about either starting or marketing a new business or thinking about finances um, uh, in these particularly turbulent times. Rasul? Uh, yeah, the only thing, you know, is, is take it day by day. Uh, whether it's in a pandemic or not, there's always that what's going to happen tomorrow or next week. And, you know, that can bring anxiety for a lot of reasons, either like we have this new contract. Are we going to be able to to serve it correctly? Are we going to be able to meet the criteria or, you know, in, on the opposite end, like in my business, is it going to be uh, operating in the next week or two or next month? Uh, and so it's just like, you know, sort of like be present in the moment. Um, and too much to the left or too much to the right, too much yesterday or too much tomorrow uh, can really create a lot of anxiety that can overwhelm you. Uh, and then we get into the space of just like, you know, just, just uh, distress and depression and things of that nature, which is very real. So my only advice is, you know, take it, take it little steps by little steps. Uh, if you try to bite off too much in terms of theoretically what may or may not happen, it, it can debilitate you in a lot of ways. So it's just like being present, you know, uh, in the moment and being thankful for what you have and, 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 and understand that everything is temporary. Uh, and, and, and believe you me, I have plenty of stories where I, I struggled with that, but eventually, you know, things will pass, uh, and yeah, just staying present and just understanding that a little bit of patience and, and just reaching out. You know, this is what the idea of community. And I think conversations like this where, you know, I've known you for Jack for some time and I have a new colleague and, and potential uh, friend here with Ari. Just reaching out to know there are folks out there that you can talk to and engage that can really help you get through the day is really important. So those are just a couple of things I think that are I would suggest to folks and definitely stay uh, uh, keep in the back of your mind or the front of your mind uh, yes. for that matter. They don't call him the startup sheikh for nothing. Ari, <laughs> right, how about you for about uh, investment and, and wealth management in this moment? Yeah, well, I, I couldn't agree more with 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 Russell's advice either. But, um, 
you know, I think that um, picking up picking up on that, it, you know, money can be really scary. It can make people feel really anxious. And you know, I encourage people to to just you know break that taboo and talk to people who you trust and you care about about money because. The, you know, in, in the society that we have, money, what you do with your money has a lot to do with, with um, you know, how you're spending your time and your resources in this world. And, um, it, you know, you, you can, it's easy for it to be overwhelming to understand all these complicated financial concepts. But, but when it really comes down to it, you know, money is just a tool and just a way of expressing, you know, what it is that you care about and what it is that you want to be spending your time and your energy and your resources on. And, you know, the goal is not to die with the most money. The goal is to have enough and to realize you have enough and to and to um, be able to spend the rest of your resources on leaving the mark that you want to leave on this world. Well, this is really great advice, fellas. Thanks again for uh, coming on to talk about it. Uh, before we go, can you share about where folks can find out about your, your work or be in touch, uh, Ari? Sure. Um, our website is valuesaddedfinancial.com. Make sure you add that S because the values part is important. It's not just value added. Um, right. And we have a blog that talks a lot about um, charitable giving uh, that's on the website. And you can reach out to us and be in touch um, through, through the contact us on the website. Awesome. And Rasul, how about for you? Yeah, sure. Matter of fact, uh, folks can find me uh, at wakif.org. Uh, that's W-A-C-I-F.org. Uh, and just a quick little plug, we're very excited. Uh, we're actually launching um, an Enterprising Women of Color Center. Uh, so much information out here in terms of support for women of color and startups. Uh, so we're launching that in the next month or two. So yeah, come by, check out the website. We're very excited about the work that's coming out here for us in 2021. That's great, that's great. All right, well, thank you so much. And uh, also I would be remiss if I didn't give a special shout out and all my love to your better halves, Kathar and Rebecca, both of them are OG interfaith collaborators, some of <laughs> some of my oest G's, and I, I love them to death. Awesome, yeah. So, and I need uh, and I need to say that I've learned so much from my partner in <laughs> how to struggle with these things and how to give more. And she was one of my early inspirations in this work. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, yeah. like the Talmudic scholar Rev Aubrey says, we started from the bottom. Now we're here. <laughs> death. He's a shake. I think he is a shake, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. he's yeah, I think he might be a shake. I think everybody's everybody's claiming Shake Drake, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, shake yeah. Drake. There you go. All right. Thanks, guys. No, thanks a lot. Our pleasure. Appreciate it. Dear listener, that's a wrap on this week's Interfaith-ish. I want to again thank my guests, Rasul Shair and Ari Weisbard. As always, a big thanks to my fellow interfaith astronauts, Miranda Hovmeyer and Sue Katz-Miller, and to our musical maestro, Jeff Philosopher, for providing our theme music. You can find our entire back catalog of Interfaith-ish episodes wherever you find and enjoy quality podcasts. Remember to leave a rating and review. You can follow us on social media at Interfaith-ish and like our content. We post regularly on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And we want to hear more about what you've learned from our shows, dear listeners. So leave us a voicemail on our special listener line, 202-599-2953. And as usual, keep writing us about the Interfaith-ish you wish to dish at interfaithish at gmail.com. That's I-N-T-E-R-F-A-I-T-H-I-S-H at gmail.com. Interfaithish will be back in two weeks. Until then, keep it locked to WOWD 94.3 FM for great music and programs seven days a week, streaming online at tacomaradio.org. <laughs>